I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Shark. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo. Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is Tuesday, April 8th, 1975. We are at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in downtown Los Angeles, California at the 47th Annual Academy Awards honoring the films of 1974. We've been joined by our MC of choice, Bob Hope, with a trio of Rat Packers, Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra, and honorary Rat Pack member Shirley MacLaine. Um, and it is time for the big award of the night. The envelope, please. And the winner is... Godfather Part Two. Francis Ford Coppola, Gray Fredrickson, and Fredericks. Shocking. Um, <laughs> this one is super shocking. Well, I think we can start this episode off by saying this is the only sequel to ever win Best Picture. So there's a first uh, for everybody. <laughs> uh, the first, the first sequel to win Best Picture. Yes. Another one does uh, later. Right. A sequel of a sequel. A, a trickle. A sequel of a trequel <laughs> does win. Whatever you call later. it. Later. Um, this is the only time that both uh, original and sequel won Best Picture as well. Yes. Um, yep. So there, there's a few, um, a few first here, you might say. Uh, and uh, funny enough, you know, I, you look at the, you look at the nominees this year, and you gotta think that Francis Ford Coppola was like, Ugh, Bob Fosse, we meet again. Maybe this time. I'll be lucky. Oh my gosh, you're, I, I didn't even realize that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, this was like a showdown again. You're right. Um, just, uh, just interesting that it's it's the them up against each other once again when the second Godfather comes through. Although Lenny's a, a very different film, so um, than Cabaret, I mean. But anyway, uh, yeah, this is um. This is going to be a fun one to unpack whenever we get to talking about Godfather Part 2. Although there's a lot of other things that I'm assuming we both want to discuss before we get there. So do you, uh, my dear friend, uh, do you want to kick us off with your, um, are we going to go spotlights first? Well, here's the deal. So I would like to talk about some snubs first. Because I honestly, I... I went into this not really having any snubs, and then as I was looking at all this stuff, I realized I actually have quite a few snubs. <laughs> quite oh, a few. Well, I think my un- unpack yeah, my, it for us. Let's unpack. My biggest snub has to be Gene Hackman for leading actor in the conversation. That would be my uh, biggest snub. Yes. Oh my gosh, he isn't nominated. What the hell? Isn't oh, that okay, wild? Ahead. It is wild. Absolutely Let's go ahead and wild. Hear what you have to say about it. Go ahead. Yeah. So I mean, I I love the conversation. I think this is such a this is such a man. Wasn't this just the year for Coppola? I mean, not only does he have Godfather Part Two, but he also has a conversation here in the Best Picture race. And honestly, if he hadn't been nominated for Godfather Two, I guarantee you Coppola would have been nominated 
for uh, for the conversation. I'm actually kind of shocked he didn't get a double nomination because the Academy does do yeah. that. I mean, Steven Soderbergh got two nominations in 2000 for Aaron Brockovich and for Traffic. So it it's is very possible. rare, but very but rare. I mean, but I feel like, but at this least would have it's understandable. At least it's under like it would be totally unacceptable if Godfather Part Two wasn't there. But at least we understand it. Like, oh well, they just didn't nominate him twice. You know, a hundred percent. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah. So I guess my further conversation about Gene Hackman will kind of play into what I want to spotlight this week. So I'm going to leave it there. Just the fact that he definitely is snubbed. This is a ridiculous snub. My other humongous snub is in supporting actor, and that's John Huston in Chinatown. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. I also am pretty flabbergasted that he didn't break through in the supporting actor field, even though this is a pretty stacked supporting actor um, lineup we have here. I just think John Huston's work in Chinatown is so... Um, good. It's just so good. He's such a presence, and I think he adds a lot um, to the movie, especially in a supporting way. He's kind of the missing puzzle piece. You, you know what I mean? That you're waiting for the entire movie, and then he just gives it to you. So I think that's yeah. kind of a crazy snub. My other snubs are smaller ones that I just personally would have liked to have seen here. One being Diane Keaton in Godfather 2 over Talia Shire. Um, Although I understand why Talia Shire is here, she was kind of riding the Francis Ford Coppola family train of nominations with him getting nominated, his dad getting nominated, and then of course they nominated his sister for supporting actor. So I get it. I get that she kind of fell into that category. But I think Diane Keaton gives a better performance in Godfather 2. And then my last one, this one's really just for me, but I would have loved to have seen Cloris Leachman get a supporting actress nomination for Young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, like that's a that's an interesting conversation. I'll go ahead and and throw Young Frankenstein into the snub list, actually, because <laughs> thank you. Um, I I think that comedies, you know, are, are especially especially comedies that are um, uh, f- farcical, that are um, mm-hmm. outrageous comedies, um, because you know, uh, Mel Brooks is a genius, and his uh, he did get honored for his screenplay for the producers several years before this, but he, his, I think Young Frankenstein's probably his best film. What's that make us? Absolutely nothing. And I would have to agree. I, think, yeah, I have to agree. I think it's, I think it is a far, far superior movie on a technical level than like, I don't know, The Towering Inferno. You know, it's pretty much this entire episode is just going to be me wondering how the Tiring Inferno got into the best picture race when Dave, I mean, okay, let's, I'm just going to list a few movies here that could be considered snubs for best picture that are better than the Towering Inferno. Alice doesn't (laughs) live here anymore is better than the Towering Inferno. Day for Night is wonderful and should be there besides Towering Inferno. <laughs> a Woman <laughs> Under the Influence is so much better than the Towering Inferno. Like, A Murder yes. on the Orient Express is better than the Towering Inferno. Blazing Saddles is better than the Towering Inferno. Like, it is absolutely insane that it is in the Best Picture race. And of the ones I just mentioned, I think that either Alice Doesn't Live Here or anymore. 
uh, which honestly is kind of criminally underrepresented, underrepresented, underrepresented. <laughs> there we go. Um, even though Ellen Burstyn does win Best Actress for her great performance in the film, it's also a really good movie. And I don't know if it's because it's a female-led film that the Academy was like, meh, and didn't give it a any uh, huge love outside of the acting categories. Um, but uh, but I would I would say that's a great spot for the fifth nominee i understand that we're still at the point where the academy doesn't really do the whole foreign film in the best picture category situation and of course day for night was kind of a weird one being in two different years basically but day for night is one of the best movies about filmmaking ever made and it it is so good i i think it's like a five-star classic so i'm wondering how that's not there and then you bring up Young Frankenstein, and Young Frankenstein, um, I think Young Frankenstein probably dates a little bit better than Blazing Saddles does. Oh, way um, better. <laughs> way yeah. better, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, um, uh, a, a lot better, yes. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, Young Frankenstein is probably the best uh, that Mel Brooks ever did, and is... Um, so uh such a perfectly crafted uh farce and it it honestly is worthy of a best picture nomination as well so i just mentioned three movies that could that could be here instead um i'm very did i I list three or four i list three right yeah it was certainly a handful Um, (laughs) it was a handful i I concentrated on three and uh any one of them would be better to put here and so i'm just the towering inferno is a technical feat it has great special effects for the time but it is (laughs) it is a bizarre (laughs) best picture nomination it is a popcorn disaster flick it does not reach the i think um the the literate heights um of the screenplay for uh, Poseidon Adventure. Um, it is uh, just another disaster movie. It really right. shouldn't be here. Right, it's kind of like how Airport snuck into the Best Picture race back in 1970. You have these it's huge blockbuster. Right, right. It's kind of like a, a lesser <laughs> version. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. The Towering Inferno is interesting. I will give one little factoid about it it's a two-part factoid because there's no one-part factoid in my life um (laughs) the towering inferno uh was a co-production between 20th century fox and warner brothers um so that's probably part of why it's here because it's representative of two different studios uh fox did the uh domestic release warner brothers did the international release so it's the first major co-production between studios also there was a disagreement in who would get top billing for this movie. Was it going to be Steve McQueen or was it going to be Paul Newman? And a deal was reached, a deal which has been repeated many times over um, in the way that they advertise a movie when there's two really big stars. Um, If you look at the poster, Steve McQueen is listed first looking right to left and Paul Newman is listed first if you're looking top to bottom. 
So, so his name's higher, but Steve McQueen's name is on the right. It's on the left, I mean. Um, And they also flipped which one was on top and which one was to the left um, with half of the movie posters and half of the prints of the film listing it one way west of the Mississippi and another way east of the Mississippi. My God, isn't it just funny how like producers have to like stroke actors' egos in like every area of filmmaking? It's so ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, but if you guys, but I mean, like even if you look at like the way that um, Eric McCormick and Deborah Messing were credited whenever their names would pop up for Will and Grace, it's the same. It's the same uh, uh, thought process. Like their names are yes. either. One way top to bottom, one way left to right. Like that's the way. Yep. That's just the way it's they they handle the situation now. So interesting. <laughs> Very um, interesting. There you go. Um, okay, so you got we are we done with snubs for now? Do you think, or do you have more? I have all of my snubs. Do you have any other snubs that you that you've noticed? Uh, I don't think so. You mentioned um, John Houston, which I would like to echo. Okay, please echo. Um, no, I'm just echoing it. That this is. Oh, this you is also the echo. agree. Gotcha. <laughs> I agree with you. That would be wooden. <laughs> he's one of those That's people who's probably is. only Got in. <laughs> he's only like in five or six or I don't know five to ten minutes of the movie, but he his presence yep. is felt the whole time. You know. Oh yeah, it's so. like one. It's like one big scene. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so, what would you like to spotlight, Stam? Okay, so let's bridge this together here. So I mentioned Gene Hackman getting snubbed for lead actor in the conversation. I think that this is probably one of the most stacked leading actor categories we've had in a number of years. So I really want to bring some attention to the five people nominated for lead actor. Because the winner (laughs) this year is (laughs) mind-boggling. It is just the craziest thing that's probably happened since Judy Holiday beat Betty Davis and Gloria Swanson. We need to talk <laughs> about this. Art Carney wins for Harry and Tonto, okay? Just just put that, store that in your brain. He won for a movie called Harry and Tonto, Tonto being his cat. Now, hey, 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 <laughs> I need hey, to hey, 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 <laughs> yes. Be careful about um, what you say about men with cats, okay? No, no, true, 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 true. No, no, I'm not, I mean, you're, you're fair. I'm not slamming anybody who owns a cat. I'm just slamming the fact that a movie about a road trip with an old man and his cat somehow broke into the Academy Awards. Um, and I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I don't hate Harry and Tonto. It is just definitely not an Oscar-caliber film, especially when you have the likes of the other nominees here, okay? Um, so I want to kind of talk about the three of these five that I think stand above the rest, right? We're talking about Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, Al Pacino, Godfather 2, and Dustin Hoffman in Lenny. Three of arguably the most talented actors to ever grace the screen. Here we are together in a category. But Art Carney wins for Harry and Tonto. Now, the more that I look at this list, the more I'm just like, what in the actual fuck? Because it seems like... As I mentioned before, this has to be another case of where these votes split between a bunch of different people, right? Like, I can see people not knowing how to choose between certainly Jack Nicholson and Al Pacino, two just, you know, iconic 
film performances today. And even Albert Finney does a really, really good job. He's probably the best part of Murder on the Orient Express. He's well, hilarious. It's a very character role. There's a lot of yes. dialogue. So I get it. And he's a lot of fun. He brings the life and you I, need I to would say, make that movie work. I just want to insert real quickly about Albert Finney yeah, yeah. in that movie. Um I also say, like, more so, this is not saying his performance is better than anyone in the category, because he's probably, he's not my choice for best actor in the category, but I do think of disappearing into a part, like, mm-hmm. he he definitely creates a character and is pretty much unrecognizable as the character, and um, I think, particularly when you compare it to other adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express, um you you really understand like how you need someone like him to hold uh a dialogue driven murder mystery together so oh absolutely yes and he does a perfect job there's actually a moment in um murder in the Orient express where i am so captivated by albert finney and i have to think that this was improvised but it's during the end when he's revealing how he thinks the murder went down And after he's been talking for about 10 minutes so far, there's a moment where he sits down and he pours a glass of water and he drinks it (laughs) and then continues on. And I really, like, in my bones, I just feel like that wasn't scripted and he really needed a glass of water because of the voice he puts on for that character could not have been good for his vocal cords. Who do we now have here in this car that could have known or could have been involved with the Armstrong household. So I just have to think that that was a that was an in the moment. I need water. Or I can't finish this take, and I love it. <laughs> I think it's and just let's perfect. let's be clear here. Like it's really hard to stand out in an ensemble that has, you yeah. know, Lauren Bacall and Sean Connery and Vanessa Redgrave and Ingrid Bergman and all of that. So anyway, uh, hats off to Albert Finney for for doing something really interesting with that part. Anyway, exactly. Uh, so I, I can, can understand votes being, yeah, right. You can understand votes being thrown it. his way too. Yeah, I can understand so why I he just... didn't reprise it in any of the other um, Agatha Christie movies they did after this. Um, oh, me too. Oh my god, because he because he was I he probably thought like I can only do this once. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? No. Yeah. It's it, he he does a really really good job. I like his nomination. It's fine with me. So I can see okay. how the votes probably got divided up and it seems to me that art carney probably just barely snuck ahead of the rest and he just happened to luck out because of that um because you know like these roles are considered these actors some of these actors their greatest performances you know my personal pick here and i i don't know if you agree with me but i'm very curious to hear my pick here is al pacino in godfather 2 and looking at these nominations it just seems so obvious today You know, I mean, just imagine if Al Pacino had gotten his Oscar here, we would not have had to have the horrible makeup Oscar for him in 1992. Does anybody really think Scent of a Woman is an Academy Award winning performance? I certainly don't. And I think the general (laughs) consensus is that this is it was, you know, a makeup Oscar because he didn't get it this year. You know, I mean, this is the role that cements Pacino in the acting world as one of the all-time greats. And then here you have Nicholson you know, right behind him, coming off a slew yes. of Best Actor nominations in the 70s, and you have him now at his best up to this date so far. Um, mm-hmm. The only reason I'm picking Pacino over Nicholson is because I think 
the following year, 1975, we're going to get a role and his win for probably his best performance of all time for Cuckoo's Nest. So I'm fine with Nicholson missing out here. But I am I not also, okay with... Go ahead. I, I think Jack Nicholson does a great job in the movie, but something that I was thinking while I was watching it is um, it's so interesting to me that a movie like this is honored in this way at the Academy in 1974, but a movie like... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good, like a, a big sleep, you know, or yeah. um, or, right. uh, or one of those movies, uh, which kind of was, uh, you know, might pick up a nomination here or there, but, you know, was not treated super seriously by the Academy. Um, and they're of, like, tonally, they're so similar. And Humphrey Bogart's performances are so consistently good in those movies. And I think Jack Nicholson's kind of doing kind of doing a little bit of a Humphrey Bogart here, kind of doing a um Very much that so. kind of thing and he does a he does a great job at it. I'm just saying like there there's nothing in his performance that I um that didn't exist 40 years earlier. So if you want to look at right. it as far as revolutionary speaking, I think Al Pacino is the transcendent um groundbreaking performance here. He's he's an anti-hero he's he's um mm-hmm. he's uh he's incredible and i hope if jack nicholson lis- listens to this i really like your performance in chinatown i'm not saying i don't i'm not trying to discredit it <laughs> no, no no i'm just saying <laughs> i that, think like, you're great the, the and i'm movies... so glad you have three oscars <laughs> well and that's what i'm saying the movies that nicholson has his oscars for i think are probably his best performances so i'm fine with him losing here same with um, Dustin Hoffman, who I think is equally transcendent in Lenny, I, but I think his you know twin Oscars for Kramer and Rain Man are probably his best performances. So it's okay yeah. for me that those ones didn't win, but it's just such a head scratcher to me that Art Carney comes out on top. You know, especially with all the love that Godfather Two gets this year. I mean, it gets six Oscars. It's three more than it, the first one won back in 1972. So you'd have thought that this was a clear victory. As, you know, probably as tied up with a bow as Godfather 2 winning picture. You know, it just seems to me that these two have to go hand in hand, but I guess not. Um, And again, I just really want to be clear. I don't hate Harry and Tonto. It's a really sweet road movie with a lot of heart, but it just doesn't come close to the emotional depth that Pacino gives as Michael Corleone. It's just insane to me. Um, So Um, I guess to you, Rance, is Pacino your pick for lead actor this year? Yeah, probably. Like, if I'm looking at the performances objectively, um, you know, I'm I'm thinking, I've been thinking about this the whole time you've been talking, um, because I just realized, like, Albert Finney never gets an Oscar. (laughs) True. (laughs) Isn't that insane? And I'm just thinking, like, how how does that get fixed? Because I don't think he wins for Tom Jones. And well, I know where we can fix it. Is it happened later? We can fix it. We can fix it in the eighties with the dresser. Okay. Stop the train. <laughs> All right. Well, well. Okay. As long as I can, I mean, like, I just want to retroactively give. I really like Albert Finney. I think he's. Yeah, me um, too. I mean, like, he has such a great career, and I think he's one of those actors that. Um, that people don't know they know because he is so kind of like different in everything. 
yeah. you know? Um, Very like, true. I don't, I don't think people realize that, you know, that guy in Big Fish, you know, is um, in anything else that they've seen. You know what I'm saying? So, yes, anyway. I do. Um, All right, well, here's here's So we'll get, to, we'll get to that. In there. I would say Al Pacino of this, that's my objective opinion. I think it's a weird Oscar win. It, because nobody gets super screwed over again, I'm not, like, upset about it. It's just, like, bizarre. You know, it's so bizarre. Um, and here's my thing: when I'm going to bring this back to Gene Hackman now, where I was saying that I think Gene Hackman uh, was snubbed, uh, and this is where I think this gets even crazier: is that of these five nominees, the one I would take off to put Gene Hackman in is Art Carney. So the one who yeah. wins, I think, by far gives the weakest performance. And it's so there were weird. other better performance so performances that should have snuck in here. It's just so weird to me. That he yeah, and wins if Gene Hackman this Oscar. didn't have an Oscar, but Gene Hackman should be. I mean, like the conversation. Um, do you have something else you want to highlight, or can I just? No, no, no! Please go ahead. Is that your spotlight? I yeah, I I I just want to spotlight <laughs> the movie, the conversation, <laughs> which um, I I've seen a few times. I it gets better every time, honestly, because it's such an ingeniously planted mystery. Um, as good of a mystery as Chinatown is, I actually think the conversation is has the slightly harder to figure out better mystery of the stories. I don't know if you agree with me on that. Um, yeah. Because I think it it pulls a really great bait and switch on the audience. Um, well, it's more of a character you, study and less of a film noir, which is what I think I it is. definitely give in to more. Yes, and so it has those, oh yes, it has a great character element to it, but also just the initial, like, you think you understand what's happening in the movie, and you don't, mm. yes. and I I love that you have this kind of unlikely detective who's, I mean, everything, just so you guys know if you haven't seen the film, the conversation is, uh, literally focuses around a conversation that a wiretapper um, played by Gene Hackman, very nervous, self-conscious dude who basically um, spends his life uh, using advanced audio technology to wiretap conversations for clients. So he's kind of like a, a different kind of private eye, if you will. And um, he ends up taping this conversation where the line is said... Um, by a lover to the woman he's um, the woman who's married who he's having an affair affair with um, he says he'll kill us if he has the chance um, and the guy who hired him to record these conversations is the husband and he feels morally uncertain about turning over these tapes because he thinks because there's information on the tapes that give a time and location and he thinks that he, if he gives over these tapes then he's going to give the husband the the information he needs to kill this couple or kill the wife or kill the lover and um and so he has this huge emotional dilemma over this but as the story goes on we realize there's more to the story and i went to a screening of this film 
um, where Cindy Williams was there and she plays the wife in the movie. And um, this was a double feature with American Graffiti and she talked in between the movies and talked about both of them. And uh, she said that that line, which is delivered by the guy who plays her lover in the film, um, he'll kill us if he had a chance. Apparently, every time you hear it, it's a different recording of the line. And so, oh. isn't that fascinating? So That's the, fascinating. The way, so you hear it one way the first time, and then each time you hear the recording, that line uh-huh. and the inflection on different words changes. Um, uh, which I just think is like such a brilliant little piece of trickery by francis that's really cool yeah um and and the way that you find out what's happening is just is genius and then um the scene where everything goes down in this hotel in san francisco is haunting it's so well done and the opening shot of this movie, which is this very slow zoom overhead shot, um, focusing in on this conversation and the way the audio is used and the audio focuses, um, the soundtrack fo- focuses in on this conversation. Um, it, it's just such a, a, a genius way to tell a story. And apparently part of the deal with making The Godfather Part Two was... Um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola said, "Okay, I'll make this, but I want I want to make this movie. Um, I'll make Godfather Part Two, but you got to make me let me make the conversation." So, um, right, that makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah. His <laughs> yes, that was his trade off. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, I I I love the conversation. I think it's such a great film. Okay, that's it's fantastic. Yes. Um, uh, that is that is a spotlight for me. Um, the only other thing that I would like to say that is spotlighty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Is um, one of my favorite Oscar speeches happens this year. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever Ingrid Bergman uh, is chosen as best supporting actress, she gets up on stage and she apologizes. <laughs> Um, to Val- yep. Valentina Cortesi. I don't know how to say her name. I'm very sorry. I think it's Cortesi, um, yeah. Cortesi. Uh, Valentina Cortesi, um, who was nominated for Dave or Night, and she apologizes to her for winning <laughs> because she thought she should have won instead. Which but is I mean, just... accurate, she's, though. But she's, Ingrid Bergman she's has no wrong. business being here. Ingrid Bergman has no business being in this lineup. She this is gives very much the a... least impressive performance of anybody in Orient Express. There's no reason for her being here. I, I, I hate this win. I hate it. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, it's funny because I mad. don't mind Ingrid Bergman having three Oscars, but it's just really weird. Um... Yeah, and it's I don't I don't I don't know. It's just interesting. I don't have any problems with her performance, I don't think in the film, like without putting an Oscar on it, it doesn't bother me, you know? No, sure. Um, yeah. Definitely. Um, but... and she does have she does have one scene that's kind of an extended close-up. Um that she, I mean, she does fine. It's um it's just 
of the supporting performances in the film, is that the one you walk away talking about? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, honestly, the only performance that should have been highlighted was Albert Finney's, and it did. This one, none of the other ones are really terribly good, in my opinion. I mean, they're all just kind of there for the the story, you know? The only person yeah, who's really not... giving his all is Albert Finney. It's not, um, and I don't think it's necessarily a fault of, uh, on the movie, because it's just, um, it's just one of those, it's kind of like, um, Knives Out, um, is a good, I think, modern equivalent here. Um, Knives Out is full of every, of performances where everybody's doing their job, but you wouldn't necessarily walk away and think, okay, well, this person should be nominated because it's an ensemble, you know? And and nobody's doing, uh, nobody has the material um, or the time to do more than be a suspect, if that makes sense, you know? It um, does make sense. It makes perfect sense. And that's why I yeah. love that, you know, Albert Finney gets highlighted, the screenplay gets highlighted, every other part it. is... Exactly. Exactly. But, I, yeah, I don't understand the... If the... I was to call out... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. If I was going to call out any one performance in the film besides him, maybe uh, maybe Lauren Bacall. But... Yeah, nah, I yeah, mean, yeah, maybe. but even that, it's like, nah. <laughs> you know, she, like, she just does her job. She does her job. It's, it's like there yeah. what, what is... There is no... Um, it, it, it's just it's an odd one. It's an odd one. Um, I you know yeah. you know who I think I would have win out of this category. <laughs> is it Diane Ladd? Please say Diane Ladd. Oh, Diane Ladd's so good. Also, Diane <laughs> Ladd is great in um, even though she has a very small part in Chinatown, she's she's really good. Um, yes. And whenever you look at Diane Ladd, can you like not forget that she she when she's younger she does look like Laura Dern. Yes, it's yes, it's frightening, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it interesting? Um, I love it that they, yeah. And you know, it's yeah. it's what's also interesting is this is a big year for both of Laura Dern's parents, even though he's not listed here. Bruce Dern was in uh, the Great Gatsby that was came out this year. Um, oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's a big year for the parents of Laura Dern. Um, <laughs> he's actually one of the better parts of that adaptation of great gatsby as well which is not uh something that i i think should be nominated for anything but um anyway uh although i will say physically speaking robert redford's like the perfect gatsby um it's it just like it doesn't quite come together that movie it feels very hollow for me um but uh madeline khan is what i was gonna say (laughs) this is another great opportunity to give madeline madeline khan a supporting actress oscar because she's really oh, funny. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Examples. She's really, really funny. Hello, handsome. Is that a 10-gallon hat? Or are you just enjoying the show? Yes, and she's yeah. equally Although, great in Young Frankenstein. Like, Madeline Kahn's just great. And this is I think this is a cool year where we have both Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein released together. And you yeah. see her getting nominated for that, but for Young Frankenstein, getting the screenplay nomination. Like, Mel Brooks is all over this year, and I do I love that. Yeah, me too. And I really do want Madeline Kahn to have an Oscar. I wish she did. Um, so that's, I'm leaning towards that. Although I think you're probably right. I think Diane Ladd probably has the best supporting performance out of this category. So, um, anywho. 
Uh, I would agree. And like how, and once again, in supporting actor, just really briefly, category, like how do we define supporting? Because <laughs> 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 it's just incredible. Uh, well, first of all, Lee Strasberg um, makes his film debut. Um, isn't his, It's his film debut, I believe. Um, and he's known for being a great acting teacher, but he's not known for being an a, a, a film actor. Um, actually, he did. He was in. He was in um, a couple of movies before this. This is his first, like, really. Um, he was like in one movie, movie in the fifties, and then he had an uncredited part in the thirties. So he has only um, six credits in movies, and this is his real first one where people have any idea what the word Lee Strasberg is, you know, and it's just so interesting to see him in a film, but it, it's odd to me because Lee Strasberg gives a supporting performance in best in Godfather part two and Robert De Niro, much the way that Al Pacino in the first Godfather gives a lead performance is the co-lead of part two. <laughs> That's fair, but you know what? Okay, you know what? I personally, I kind of see Robert De Niro still as a supporting part in this because the flashbacks in Godfather 2 support the present material mm. of what's going on with Pacino. You know what I mean? Like, I guess you're so. experiencing Pacino's rise in the ranks, which is kind of mirroring how De Niro as Vito rose as well, and you're seeing the impact of. You know, mm-hmm. all of the enemies that Vito made coming into play now with what Michael has to deal with to save the family. You know, so I, I can see him fitting, supporting more than leading. But it is a very hefty leading performance, that's for sure. <laughs> it feels almost unfair to be in that supporting category because you're like, well, yeah. I'm up against Robert De Niro, who is half of that movie. So, yeah, but you know, you see that and, a lot. Like, and speaks kind of, in Italian the whole time. You know? The whole time. Oh, yeah, and uh, we see that a how lot. How are you going to compete mean, with that? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we kind um, of, we've started talking about Godfather 2, so what if we break off into our main event now and let's chit-chat about our picture winner, Godfather okay. Part 2. Um, so Godfather Part Two tackles two different plots like we just broke down here. It does depict Michael Corleone, who is the new Don of the Corleone crime family. He's working to secure his family's business and tie up any loose ends that he has with all of the enemies he made <laughs> from the first Godfather movie and how that film ended. And then the other story running parallel with this is that of young Vito Corleone and how he grew up to create the Corleone crime family that we're seeing Michael deal with. Um, in the present day. Um, right off the bat, I'll just tell you, I love this movie. I think it's really, really great. And, okay, let's just get into this question. I, here's one of the questions that I really want to talk to you about, Rance, is I feel like this is such a debated question of which godfather is the better godfather, part one or part two. So I really want to know which one you prefer. I think my answer changes depending on what I just watched. <laughs> that is If valid. that makes any sense. I feel like <laughs> does, you watch... I, 
I feel like you watch part one, you're like, well, this is like, it, this is the best version of this type of movie. This is the best, you know, that this could possibly be. And then you watch part two, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is like the best, you know. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, they're both considered to be great films. They're both in uh, the AFI top 100 movies of all time. Interestingly, mm-hmm. Chinatown ranks above uh, Godfather Part Two, um, which we oh, can talk about in a little bit. Um, but uh, I, um, I think for like the iconic sake of it, Part One is probably the slight edge. Mm-hmm. But but they're I think they're pretty much equal in terms of quality storytelling acting um and i think they tell a story that's such a companion piece you know um yes uh and but but godfather can exist without godfather part two and that's why i'm gonna give it a slight edge i think i see what you mean okay i get that yeah I like that. And you know what? Just to give you the the counter argument, I think I might prefer Godfather 2 just because when you watch Godfather 2, you almost have more of an appreciation for it because of all you know about Godfather 1. So then you go into Godfather 2 and it's just so much more enjoyable because you already know these people. You know what they've struggled up against. You know, so you, um, you feel for them a little bit more. They feel more... It feels more personal, I guess, Godfather 2 does. You know, I think that's kind of where I'm coming from. This felt like a more personal piece of work. And I think it's because you get the flashbacks and you see um, his rise to um, becoming this godfather of this crime family. It's such an interesting story because it really depicts, like this fabricated version of an American dream that that was promised to immigrant families, right? You know, you come here, you can create a business and you can make a life for yourself. Anybody can do it. But the truth was not anybody could do it. Hardly any immigrant could do it. And one of the only ways, like, immigrant families of these European countries could actually stay alive is by going into the crime business, by joining the mob or mafia, what have you. And this is what this movie is all about, you know? I mean, you hear over and over again in both of these movies how Michael didn't want to be in the family business. Um, His father didn't even want that for him. His wife Kay doesn't want that for him. And even when he does accept that he has to go into it, he tells Kay that it's only going to be five years, you know, and then we're going to make our business legitimate. It's We're going to, you know, and it's just the lie you keep telling yourself because you have to believe that just in order to keep going. Even though I feel like full, he knew full well that there was no escape. You know, there is no escape once you're in this. The only escape is death. And I think that's what we see Michael come to terms with in Godfather 2. And that is ultimately where all the destruction comes from, right? He can't trust anybody anymore. He can't even trust his family anymore because everyone is out to get him or to get the business. And he really struggles with that here. Yeah, that's a really great um, way of breaking it down. Um, I I mean, like, you're not going to get a a hot debate on me on this one because I I think... (laughs) I think that it's just a matter of um, I my my answer could change to Godfather Part Two, if <laughs> I if I sat down and watched Godfather Part Two one day and said no this is the best one like that's 
Yeah, you know, it's I, interchangeable. It really is. I, I think that they're both uh, perfect parts to a whole, you know? Um, yes. Godfather Part 3, another conversation. Um, but <laughs> we'll get there in 1990. Um, we will. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, yeah. What I... Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to go... I'm going to keep it with Godfather. Although... I think that this is a, a speaking to 1974. I think this is a very worthy best picture winner. I think it's an immaculately crafted film. The way that it cuts back and forth between Vito's story and Michael's story is mm-hmm. somehow seamless. Even though, uh, unlike a lot of movies that deal with uh, prolific flashbacks, there's not. Um, really any like and now we're going into a flashback you know type of moment there's no narration there's none of that you just cut back and forth pretty seamlessly the entire movie and you like the the movie is not giving you a huge signal to let you know like okay this took place a long time ago you know, and I mm-hmm. think that that in itself is a directorial feat. It makes me very glad that Francis Ford Coppola won for this movie because he was truly dealing with um, very difficult to handle material. Uh, Definitely, yeah. Um, so that's that's where I am on that. I think that this opens up another question. Mm-hmm. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about the conversation. Um, and uh, I think that we probably need to talk a little bit about Chinatown. And then I think we have to decide what is the best of these three absolutely perfect films. That is a good question. Yes, yes, yes. Let's talk about Chinatown. Let's get into that. Chinatown does yeah. pick up an Oscar for screenplay. Um, uh-huh. Dessert. Yes, Yep, it does, and that's kind of, you know, and I, I'm i kind of okay with that being its place to shine, because I do think the screenplay of Chinatown is the best part about it. Now, I say that not to, like, smack anybody else, because the performers are brilliant, but I think without those words, I mean, it's the words that really create the tone of Chinatown, right? It really is. Right. And it certainly shapes the performances, you know, um... I don't know. Part of me is just like, Faye Dunaway really got so lucky with some of her early roles. She's just given gold here, Mm -hmm. you know, and she really does something quite special with it. Um, Yeah. But no, I think Chinatown is just, it's very like an updated color film noir. And I think since it looks different than film noir of the 40s and 50s, it feels fresh. You know, whereas you pointed out earlier, it really isn't, but it does kind of feel and look a little fresh because it has that color to it that gives it a bit more life off the paper, you know? Yeah, and it can be more explicit than a movie in the 40s could with its content, of course. Oh my god, Um, way more explicit. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth! Oh and, my god! <laughs> and it does, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to reveal anything that happens at the end, but it does go to a very dark place in the very, last yeah. uh, ten, fifteen minutes of the movie. That is kind of shocking, um, very shocking, actually. It's one of those they're not gonna. Oh no, they're gonna go there. Okay, cool. 
Um, and then uh, there's a death at the end of the movie that is kind of graphic. Um, it's it, You only see quick shots of what happens, but what you do see is kind of like, oh, this is gory. This is, this is intense. Um, but uh, what I was going to call out in this film is I think that the score is ingenious. And I, I think it's interesting because... Uh, in 1972, okay, 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 yeah. in 1972, um, the Godfather was denied its nomination for musical score because it was determined that too much of what was used was derivative of something else. Well, whatever happened, the the rules must have changed in those two years because that the same themes are used in the score for 1974, and this wins best original score. Which is interesting, um, right? Very but, interesting. Yes. Um, I think if I'm redoing this, you know, uh, maybe if that score nomina- uh, nominations allowed in 1972, we let Godfather have its moment to shine right then, and then Jerry Goldsmith can win for this for Chinatown because I think the music in Chinatown creates the stereotype if you will for that feeling of a crime drama set in the 30s because even though uh, you know you watch film noirs of the 40s and 50s and, uh, you know, the music is more of a um, typical musical score, you know. It's a very uh, dramatic, um, orchestra-driven score. Well, the score in this film is very heavily dependent on the saxophone to give this old-school feeling. And, you know, I don't think this movie necessarily originated that tone, but it certainly cemented it, and pretty much every single movie that is of, in every single TV show that evokes this kind of tone, even up to something like uh, Perry Mason, which HBO did this, um, the remake of Perry Mason that HBO did this last summer, they all have, the score has this feel uh, that this movie does. And I think Jerry Goldsmith kind of created something that has become a uh, a trope. Mm. So yeah, um, I, I think this score like is a star in this movie. And the and also as a person who loves L.A. and loves Los Angeles, yes. this is one of the best L.A. movies ever made, um, and it's one of the only L.A. movies where the film business has nothing to do with anything yes it oh is, yeah it's all about water and power <laughs> it's all about water and power now nothing in the movie is true that should be that should be stated that like, this is a fictionalized account of uh the water and power situation in los angeles which the water and power drama didn't even happen in the 1930s it happened in the in the 19 aughts in the early early 1900s and um, and it wasn't, it didn't go down exactly this way. None of the people are re- real people. Um, and, 
You know, there was, however, a dam that broke and killed a lot of people in the 1920s, I believe. Um, and that was a dam created by Mulholland of Mulholland Drive. Um, and uh, he uh, he ended up, after that dam, bra- dam broke, he didn't keep working, really. He kind of went and became a recluse because he was so devastated by the fact that something he had built had done that. And so um, the kind of an interesting backstory. And so this is the thing I also like about what I just explained about how this isn't true is that I think Chinatown presents a fictionalized version of L.A. history that isn't really remotely true at all. And what is more L.A. than fake history? (laughs) you know yeah that's a good point (laughs) it's uh that's true it's such an la story even in its fakeness so um it is like the best version of what it is that said i godfather part two is iconic and it definitely deserves best picture my only qualm here is i think of the three movies the actual my actual favorite is the conversation but Godfather Part Two is my best picture winner. For me, I have to go with Godfather Part Two, and I'll tell you why. There's a scene at the very end of Godfather Part Two which really just amazed me. It comes at the very end, the very final flashback scene, um, where we see, you know, all the siblings together again. No one's dead yet. And they're celebrating Vito Corleone's birthday. It's a surprise party. He's not there yet. They're all around the dinner table waiting for him to come. And that's where Michael tells them that he's enlisted in the army. And they all get so angry and they tell him, how dare you, you know, make a decision for yourself. We have plans for you. The family has plans for you. And Michael's like, I have plans for myself. Yada, yada, yada. And then Vito, you know, he's heard coming through the door. So they all get up and they leave to go greet him. Except for Michael, who stays seated and i think it's so genius because coppola keeps the frame on michael and we hear the rest of his family conversing in a different room but in the background of the shot you can see into the study and you see you know vito corleone's chair the desk these this kind of infamous setting now and it's just slightly out of focus in the background of Michael and you know no matter what he does he cannot get away from that it will suck him in and eventually he's gonna have to inhabit the space that his father does and I think that's just genius and it really kind of cinched this movie to be my pick for best picture and my favorite of the year honestly I think it's amazing uh yeah Godfather Part 2 is amazing I think my favorite um my favorite moment in this I, I love the entire relationship with Fredo yes um, and the the arc of that um, and it, it's such a it's such a a moment that's sent up over and over and over again but whenever he kisses Fredo at that <laughs> party and says uh, I know it was you I know it was you Fredo you broke my heart you broke my heart uh, it is chilling. That's chilling. You just and see the look in Fredo's face, and his he fate is, is just... sealed. Ugh. Yeah, it's. And I love the fact. I, I love the callback that the 
the last time we see Diane Keaton in this movie, the door is shut on her face. It's wow, such you know a what? small detail. As you were starting, as you were starting that sentence, I hadn't thought about that yet, and then I knew where it was going, and I was like, "Oh my god, you're right." <laughs> like, I um, knew where that was going. <laughs> it's such a small detail, but it is. I, right. I love the, I love the synergy between the first movie and the second movie, and the fact that we continue to use oranges to represent death. And yes, um, yes, the colors all those, are so the good. The colors are, uh, you know, just Michael, that haunting gaze looking at Lake Tahoe, you know? Yes. Like, mm. uh, it's so, mm, mm, so, so mm. good. Every time I hear someone mention Lake Tahoe, I immediately think of Godfather Part Two. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think about poor Fredo. Anyway. Um, anyway. <laughs> poor poor anyway. Fredo. But yes, um, I think it's yes. uh, a perfect film. Interestingly, unlike the first one, this one has an intermission. It's yes, longer that's than true. the first Well, it is movie, about 30 minutes longer. Intermission. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, and they, right. apparently that it passed the point where Paramount was like, we got to give this one an intermission <laughs> because they didn't do it with the first one. So... True. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like three and a half hours. How long is it? Yeah. It's right around three and a half, three hours and 20 minutes or so. Yeah. And the first one was just under three, I think. Yep. So, um, true. true, Anyway, but wonderful movie. Chinatown, also a wonderful movie. The Conversation, also a wonderful movie. I think all three of them, of these Best Picture nominees, um, where I, I should say that if I could take the Towering Inferno out, I, I think I would put Day for Night or Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore <laughs> or or Young yep. Frankenstein. If that was the case, I would say those are also perfect films. Um, there are some really great movies in 1974, and Lenny is a great film too. This is a this is a this is a wonderful year. I agree with you. And you know what, Rance? Next year is an equally wonderful year because we are going to be talking about a movie next week that sweeps the top five Academy Awards. Has not happened since the 1930s. My gosh. We're going to talk about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, I've seen this before. I really adore this movie. I'm pretty sure you've seen it, yes? Uh, Believe it or not, Sam, I have not. This will be my first time watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, I know. I'm so know. excited for you. Oh, okay. But this I is have gonna be seen, a fun conversation next week. It's funny because I'm already I'm already pretty prepped otherwise because I've seen Dog Day Afternoon, I've seen Jaws, I've seen Nashville. So mm-hmm. I'm I, I am ready. I am ready for this conversation. So join us next week, everybody, as we break down the movies of nineteen seventy-five. <laughs>